This is an ABC podcast. Sometimes I walk up the street and I'm wondering not only where I'm going, but who I am. And that is, that is really scary. I had scary. a nervous breakdown I myself. Think... I, I don't say this was the only um, cause of it, but it contributed in, in no I think there have been people way. perhaps who uh, haven't wanted to know us because uh, we have David. Would you like a banana? Mm. Would you like some bread and butter? Yes. You'd like some bread and butter? These are ABC archives from the 1960s and 70s. Mothers speaking out about what it was like to have an autistic child. Hello, I'm Rebecca Huntley and this is the History Listen. Today, the second in our series, The Singular Mind, where we're exploring the history of autism in Australia. In this episode, we move on from the mid 20th century. Here's producer, Cathy Pryor. It's been four years since the term autism entered my own family's life, when my second child, Lucien, was diagnosed. Two years later, his younger brother, Felix, received the same assessment. The realisation that Lucien saw the world in a different light was a slow burn for us, but there were small clues along the way. At his four-year-old checkup, there was a standard cognitive question on the list. What colour is a banana? Lucien's answer was white. When you think about it, he could well be right. The skin may be yellow, but the flesh is much paler than that. Of course, I'm an excellent driver. That's me drive slow on the driveway. Chris, only 28 miles on the odometer since I drove it a week ago last Saturday. It should be more than 28 miles. When Lucien was learning to walk, he had an endearing habit of following the squares on a rug in our back room over and over again. Well before autism was on our radar, I once flippantly remarked to my husband, he's a little bit like Rain Man, don't you think? John Donvan, co-author of In a Different Key, The Story of Autism, says the impact of the Dustin Hoffman hit film from 1989 was profound. Rain Man is probably the first time I ever really heard of autism myself, and I think that's true for a lot of the lay public. And... For a while, I, I met a lot of people who didn't like the movie because they said, oh, that movie comes out and right away everybody thinks that my brother or my son or my sister is like Rain Man. And he's not. Rain Man's one person with autism. And of course, the general public generalized to think that's how everybody was. And that was a wrong thought. But it really put the concept on the map. The irony was that around the time Rain Man hit our cinema screens, a revolution of sorts was already brewing in the way autism would be defined. Despite the stereotype of Raymond Babbitt, the film's main character, a narrow notion of what autism looked and sounded like was about to be replaced by a much more nuanced concept, the autism spectrum. It really caught on in the 1990s, but the first real clear articulation of the concept dates back to um, 1979, 1980, came out of London a prominent child psychiatrist and a giant in the world of autism research and thinking named Lorna Wing. She argued that the characteristics that were recognizable in severely autistic people could also be seen in milder forms in other people who were far more capable of independence in life. And she said, you know, autism is a broader thing and it shows up in different kinds of combinations and in different intensities. She was quite taken with the work done in Vienna 
in the 1930s by a doctor named Hans Asperger, who described boys who were really intelligent, but they were having social problems. Their language was a little bit off. They might talk too much for what was considered socially acceptable. And Lorna Wing said, I think that those things that Asperger was describing are a variation of the thing that Connor is describing, but there is variation and there's a spectrum of it. John Donvan is referring there to psychiatrist Leo Connor, considered the founding father of autism in America for his groundbreaking research in the 1940s. Some argue Connor must have known of Asperger's work from the outset, but he certainly never named him or gave him credit. With the emergence of Asperger's syndrome four decades later, Hans Asperger was lauded for his insightful understanding of autistic children. But recent research has revealed there was a more sinister side to Asperger's work. My name is Edith Schaeffer and I am a historian of 20th century Germany and just wrote a book called Asperger's Children, The Origins of Autism in Nazi Vienna. Hans Asperger was an Austrian pediatrician trained in the University of Vienna Medical School and he began his medical studies in the late 1920s and then began work at the University of Vienna Children's Hospital in the 30s and 40s. And one of the things I uncovered in my research is that his description of autism changed year by year and grew increasingly harsh over the course of the Third Reich. So he published repeatedly on autism in 1940 and 1942, and then in his final treatise on autism, which he wrote for promotion to associate professor in 1944, he really was using quite fascist pejorative language. A central tenet of Asperger's work was a concept called Gemüt. In Nazi psychiatry, Gemüt took on social connotations and really meant this metaphysical sense of community spirit, of feeling at one with the whole, at one with the group. Asperger's final treatise in 1944 defined autism as a defect of gemüt. Under the Third Reich, if a child could learn to have gemüt and become part of the Volk, they would survive. If not, they were sent to one of the regime's notorious institutions, Spiegelgrund, often put to death alongside other disabled children. Hans Asperger, who was never a member of the Nazi party, said throughout his life that he had helped save autistic children from the evils of the regime. But Edith Sheffer says her research shows that he was instead an active participant. Asperger's role was to evaluate children who came to his clinic and decide basically appropriate institutional placement. And he transferred them to various institutions, including Spiegelgrund. Asperger also worked for Vienna's public health office, which sounds benign, but it was actually the center of what's called racial hygiene policies in Vienna for sterilizations, deportations, and euthanasia selection. And he was on a seven-panel commission that examined 210 children in one day and transferred 35 of them to Spiegelgrund, where they all perished. The lessons of Asperger are the role of political and social forces in shaping medical approaches to children and how the way in which we see children can be through this lens of social ideals that we might 
need to continually question. Australian historian Dave Earle agrees that our notions of disability are always affected by politics, class and the social norms of the day. The way that we define disability is very much in relation to the normal. Over time, what we consider to be normal in society changes, it develops. John Donvan says autism is a case in point. We think it's pretty likely that autism was always part of the human population. Of course, because the concept didn't come into focus until the mid-20th century, we can't ever prove it because nobody was testing them against criteria. In Russia, in the Middle Ages, there were religious individuals who were sometimes in English known as the holy fools, who went about in winter naked and saying inappropriate things, even inappropriate things to people in power. And they were called fools in the sense of being almost like childlike, but that they were holy, that God had somehow touched them and made them this way for a reason. And it was thought that reason was to communicate things to the rest of humanity. On the other hand, there have been places where people who demonstrated these abilities were considered to be witches and and were murdered. And so a lot of it depends on the context, whether the way that they behave is seen as a problem or sometimes even as a gift. In 1994, autism was redrawn in the Diagnostic Manual, or DSM, the Bible that outlines mental disorders. This was the period when the definition of autism became wider, and after much debate, Asperger's syndrome was given its own classification. More children were now receiving a diagnosis, and words like epidemic and outbreak started to swirl around. Andrew Whitehouse, now Chief Research Officer at the Autism Cooperative Research Centre, remembers the uncertainty of the time. The first big wave of children being diagnosed with autism was happening. It was just happening just then and it was a new phenomenon. People didn't know what was happening. Where are all these children coming from that we're now calling autism? So I think to a large extent there was a bit of panic in the clinical community. As humans do, we start to get a bit paranoid and so there was all these theories about what might there be in the uh, environment that might be causing autism. And of course we had vaccines and um, we had poor parenting, we had uh, lead exposure, we had all of these things, all of which have been um, disproved. But nevertheless, this it was circling around at that time and it was a time of I think in the scientific community great fear and in the clinical community huge trepidation about how do we have these services to to cope with this large number of children. Hi my name is Chris Varney, I'm autistic, I'm 31 years old and I run a company that I created at the end of 2013 called the ICANN Network and we're a social enterprise predominantly led by autistics that run mentoring and training programs. I was diagnosed when I was five years old, so 1992 at Marinda Psychiatric Unit. I was diagnosed with Asperger's, so a mild form of autism. Uh, at that time, Asperger's wasn't well known, so it was the first time my parents, Lisa and John, who were both in the nursing profession, had heard of it. And uh, they received a, a very negative prescription around that diagnosis. It would be extremely hard to sit down and have someone who doesn't really know your kid suddenly point out all the funny ways that they move when you might have looked at those ways as, hey, they're just unique, they're just individuals. It was very disempowering. Things have come a long way. I don't think 
we're seeing as many parents treated like that. To doctors, autism is a euphemism, a series of baffling and often bizarre symptoms in so search of a disease. So what does Chris make of these 1968 ABC archives I've found? This two-way mirror at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne is perhaps symbolic of autism itself. Yeah, wow. So this is talking about the kid as an object. You can see why some people have such a narrow view. How can you talk about kids as objects? Goodness, we've come a long way. You look at it and you go, forgive everyone in that moment, but we've come a long way. In recent years, one of the biggest changes in thinking about autism is the idea of neurodiversity, a term that was first coined by Australian sociologist Judy Singer in 1998. It found traction among quarters of the autistic community who wanted a rethink on the way autism was perceived. So what exactly is neurodiversity? Author John Donvan. Neurodiversity defines the idea that there's no such thing as a neurology that's broken or wrong or inferior. We're all human. We all have different variations of everything from eye color to hair color to finger length to voice quality to the way our brains work. And that's fine. That doesn't mean it needs to be fixed. It's part of the fabric of humanity. Oh, did it get me? It knocks you out. When I speak to my own sons about autism, I teach them to wear the word with pride. But questions of diagnosis, identity and disability have at times caused debate inside the autism community. Today, the spectrum is wide and varied and the definitions and understanding of autism have expanded radically since the mothers who had autistic children in the 60s and 70s first spoke of their experiences. Hello, this is Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. In part one of this series, we met Joan Curtis, who in the late 1960s founded an autistic school and service in Mansfield in northeast Victoria for her son Jonathan and other children. Jonathan is now an adult and lives with three other autistic men in supported accommodation down the road from his mother. This is Tika. Hi, Tika. Hi. She's a lovely dog. And she walks Jonathan. Well, we're not sure who walks who. When I visit Joan and Jonathan at Acorn, a work and recreation centre set up for the men, Jonathan sits silently on the couch while the rest of us stand around chatting. Joan's photo album is full of the travels Jonathan has been on with his family. His life is a full one. But he can go through bouts of destructive behaviour that includes cutting himself with any sharp object at hand. And Joan acknowledges that finding meaningful work for her son is a constant challenge. It's one of my chief preoccupations, thinking of useful activities that are within their scope. Now, Jonathan and Johnny are both very limited in what they can do. I wanted to find something that was meaningful and useful, and I wanted some kind of packaging job. And I went to the local uh, stock agent and looked where they got a room full of equipment and tools and things there, and I found some gripples. You know what a gripple is? No, what's a gripple? Well, it's a little metal gadget that you use for joining fence wires. And they had them in packets of 50, which is more than most people want. So I persuaded them to let us have packets of 50, which we would then break down into packets of 20. And this was very successful. It went on for some months. And then, unfortunately, the firm woke up to the fact that people preferred packets of 20, So now we haven't got a job. So 
I've tried to find something else, but I haven't. It's, it's hard to find really appropriate things. If you come up with any bright ideas, let me know. Jim has a wonderful memory. He's also very good at calculating things. If you tell him your date of birth, he can tell you what day of the week you were born. That's right, isn't it, Tim? Exactly. When's your birthday? 25th of June, 1973. It was Monday. Wow. That's amazing. I also meet Tim and Carl at Acorn, and they tell me about their artwork around the wall. Can I turn it around to have a look? Is this you? Is this a picture of you? It is a picture of you. Yes, 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 yes. That's a saxophone. Yep. And that one's trombone, trumpets. Do you have a favourite instrument out of the jazz instruments? The, the trumpet. A bit like the late, great Louis Armstrong. I, you know, I thought I was managing very well and I went downhill and I finished up at the psychiatrist. I've been dodging them for years and they put me on happy pills, which are marvellous. I feel much better now. More That's the late Pearl Treweek, who was interviewed by the ABC in 1968. Her son Brian is now in his 60s and living in supported accommodation. His niece, Ayesha Treweek. Because in the end, Brian became very violent and aggressive and started to lash out at Nan. And I said to Nan, you have to have a life. Like, you can't live like this all the time. Next one that comes up, you need to take it. The position, because she just kept denying it. She said, no one's going to treat Brian the way I treat Brian. Today, Ayesha is visiting Brian at home. <laughs> just as it did when he was a boy, music still plays an important part in Brian's life. His favourite spot in the house is his chair near the CD player. Who am I? Jean Wareham and her son David were also featured in the ABC archives from 1973. David moved into supported accommodation a few years before his mother's death in 1996. We don't, we don't want my underground train. His older brother, Neil. Everyone was learning, we were all learning, my parents were learning. I can look at it and I can see how really hard it was for all of us and the effects on my non-autistic siblings, which have actually been quite profound. The journey has been extraordinarily difficult. I won't have to talk. Okay, so in May 1962, case reviewed... That's Dej Ezenyi, reading from the medical notes for her brother, who was born in 1957. The most disturbing aspects of his behaviour are destructiveness, tendency to bite... Her mother, Dimpfner, helped form the first autistic association in Australia in 1964. Since her mother's death, Dej's brother has been living independently, with some supports. I'm certain that my mother, until her death, lived in fear about what would happen to him. How will he get on? He has autism with some cognitive impairment. He's ended up really like a 
a bright four-year-old with a huge vocabulary. He is well known in his community. Most people don't take advantage of him. Most people treat him with extraordinary kindness and understanding without knowing anything about him or what his diagnosis might be. And that, I think, is a message that might be given to the parents of many young autistic people today. Now, I know it's a spectrum, so some have more ability and some have less ability. But I think that parents ought to be aware that there are autistic adults out there who are living independent and valuable lives. What would be the rate of recovery for autism? Well, eventually he'll be back in normal society as a normal person. As these ABC archives from the 1960s reveal, the emphasis for many years was on finding a cure for autism. But do we still talk of curing autism today? Professor of Autism Research, Andrew Whitehouse. No. The line between what we consider to be normal, in inverted commas, and disorder, in inverted commas, is a human-drawn line. There is incontrovertible evidence that that's the case. It is us as clinicians, as scientists, that says this is disorder and this is normal, both in inverted commas. We are not seeking to cure differences in brain development, but what we can seek to do is mitigate, if not ameliorate, some of the disadvantageous things that come along with some aspects of brain development, like intellectual disability, like language impairment. So I don't think they're incompatible. What we can say is that we need to also look at other aspects that we can help people reach their full potential. I'm at a camp run by Mansfield Autism Statewide Services, which was founded by Joan Curtis 50 years ago. Today, autistic children and their parents and siblings are wrapping up a week of activities in Harrietville at the foot of the Victorian Alps. As their children prepare for a concert they're giving this evening, some of the parents are reflecting on that moment of diagnosis. Um, shock. Uh, how? Why? Um, blamed myself. What was it that you thought that you had, had done? Well, I'm his mother and I carried him. I thought maybe I'd done something. Yeah, I just, as I think as a mother, you, you take a lot of the, the blame on yourself. As the women speak with me, their words have a familiar ring. I'm reminded of the accounts of mothers from the 60s and 70s, which were so compelling in the ABC archives. We may have come a long way with autism, but the emotions reverberate across the decades. Lucy is a loner and um, does prefer her own company a lot. But in saying that, she also does like the company of other kids. But when she does go to try and interact with these kids, they just don't want to know her. You know, they look at her like she's a freak. How difficult is that for you as a, as a parent to witness that? That's the hardest. That's the hardest. I think about how that will affect her in her future.
The individual histories of thousands of autistic children and adults are yet to be written, and the story of autism in this country is an ongoing one. In 2013, Asperger's syndrome lost its own distinct definition in the diagnostic manual, although there'll always be at least one generation who identify as Aspies. And even as I was researching this series, new national guidelines on autism were released. The definitions of autism remain the same, but the move is a recognition that we need a more uniform approach to the way autism is diagnosed in this country. Autism researcher Andrew Whitehouse. Unlike clear medical conditions, we don't have a biological marker. So with diabetes, we diagnose based on blood glucose levels. With kidney disease, we diagnose based on a suite of urine tests. We don't have that luxury in autism. All we have is this beautiful, wonderful, warm, loving child, often child, sometimes adult, in front of us who's saying, get to know me, understand me. The different causal pathways to autism are myriad. And same with behaviours. The behavioural spectrum within autism is myriad. So the way that I would prefer to conceptualise autism is not necessarily a spectrum, but it's an umbrella term that encompasses a huge variety of humanity. Autistic advocate and mentor Chris Varney would like to see the spectrum not as a linear definition, but a circular one, where the individual strengths of each person, no matter where they sit on the continuum, are recognised. What is magic about bringing different areas of the spectrum together is there can be such understanding of people's interests and fixations and their challenges. I do think that neurodiversity has been a great thing. I think what we can do as an autistic pride movement is create far more space with, for people with severe autism in our community. I think that's really our job. That's, that's something we must do. And perhaps the life of Donald Triplett, considered autism's case number one in the 1940s, can be a lesson to us all. When John Donvan and his co-author Karen Zucker tracked Donald down several years ago, they found him in his 80s, still living in the place of his birth, the small town of Forest, Mississippi. Well, we actually had no idea what he would be like. My co-author, Karen, called and there was an answering machine answered the phone she heard a voice say, hello, happy spring and happy summer and have a wonderful Christmas season and a wonderful 2007, but in a kind of sing-song voice. And Karen has a son with autism. And she said, what she always says is, I knew in a second that this was our guy. He lived alone and he was still fascinated by numbers. He had a photograph collection. He likes to take pictures and he had learned how to use a computer. And he was really, really devoted to creating this whole cataloging system for all of his photographs. He had also, though, expanded in a lot of ways that we never expected. For example, he likes to travel, and he's been all over the world. He always goes away for six days, and never more than six days, and he takes pictures. When we started going to people to introduce us to Donald, it was a really interesting thing. Two or three of them said variations on the following, I'll consider introducing you to Donald, but if you hurt this guy in any way, I'll, I'll make you pay for it. The whole notion of this community is Donald's a good guy, Donald's one of us, we're going to watch out for him and we're going to help him where he needs help. He's our friend. It's a very, very happy story, but it was the exception to what was happening to other people who were given the label that he helped the O'Connor coin. You can sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow, sing along. 
The Singular Mind, A History of Autism in Australia, was produced by Cathy Pryor. The sound engineer was Brendan O'Neill. And a huge thank you to all the people who shared their stories for this series, both past and present. This is the History Listen, and I'm Rebecca Huntley. I look forward to your company next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.